This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Forging Ahead. And if you haven't already, please do remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. Tell everybody, dish out golden stars. I don't know if they are golden, but hey, everything should be golden. And thank you uh, for anyone and everyone who's already taken the time to support us. We love you, motherfuckers. But back to today's theme, which is cycling. One of my favourite Emo Phillips gags goes like this. When I was a little boy, I used to pray every night for a new bicycle. Then I realised the Lord, in his wisdom, doesn't work that way. So I just stole one and asked him to forgive me. In 1949, 37% of journeys in this country were made by bicycle. Today, that figure is just 2%. And bicycles have no speed limits in the UK. That's a real thing. But you can be charged for cycling furiously. Cycling furiously. And until 1998, Britain's nuclear weapons were secured by bicycle locks. Oh, good old Great Britain. Makes you proud, doesn't it? Is this is the video recorded much for this as well? Should I look a little bit smarter? That's my guest today, Stephen Grant. There's a quote I like from social activist, Australian social activist, Irina Dunn. She said, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. Just let that hang for a minute. Okay, it's a bit sexist, but I'm not going to argue. Women were discouraged from cycling in the 19th century because doctors thought what they were susceptible to something called bicycle face. And there was advice for women who persisted in still cycling, even at risk of bicycle face. And that advice included, don't scream if you meet a cow. And finally, there are more bicycles in Copenhagen and in Amsterdam than there are people. And back to Amsterdam and uh, the Netherlands, because so many Dutch people sing when they're cycling, there are actual special cycling paths where you're encouraged to sing aloud. And those are called Zumfietsbader, singing cycling paths. Have you got a front light that's really in the front at the moment? Stephen Grant is one of the UK's most hardworking, long-standing and respected comedians. Oh, and he is quite funny, I should say that. 
He's won multiple awards for his emceeing skills and is the most experienced late show compare in the UK due to his 23-year residency at the Crater Club at the Comedia in Brighton. In January 2022, Stephen started the Forge Comedy Club, Brighton's newest and most advanced performance space. I've just done a weekend there and it is a marvellous place to play and I think a pretty nice place to be an audience member. He's an avid cyclist and host of The Cycling Pod and he's a sought-after writer. He's written on multiple hit TV shows as well as regularly writing for some of the biggest comedy names in the UK. Stephen and I talked about single dadding, sibling rivalry, comedy, friendships, performance, mental health, cycling, divorce, lawsuits, venues, and ambition. But I started by asking him about being a comic with kids. When you're a comic and you're children and you've got children and they desperately begging for your attention you kind of feel even though all children do this you kind of feel responsible because you think that neediness to be the center of attention that's dna i've done that do both yours because mine are so different from each other i mean you know my kids and they are both incredibly different in terms of how they uh, how and if they need the spotlight what are your two like in terms of personality then are they are they similar in terms of how they try to be center stage (sighs) Mm, one of them's happy to be centre stage and one of them absolutely does not. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, when you get a cat home and it's a, and, and one of them will, will come in through the door, hug the wall, hide behind the furniture and wait days before it comes out. And one will walk into the middle of the room and look around. And my children, one of them hugs the furniture and one of them walks into the middle. So I have one, my younger child, who is a show off uh and is you know he plays football and he's known as a show pony because he does all the tricks because he knows that he loves it you know uh, and and that's that feels like that he's got that from me and the other one is uh, a, a bit of an introvert but he's also got but he's got he's got the comic brain he keeps coming up with stuff that is observation at the oblique level that only comics have whereas the other one doesn't have that but he has the desperate need to show off so i'm pretty I would say I'm pretty sure that neither of them have become comedians because they've taken the two fundamental ingredients, which is the need to show off and the way to think differently. And both of them have that, but neither of them have both of it. Unless they become a double act, they have to do everything together. Oh, I think the point at which they can go their separate ways and do their own things will be that they will they will punch the air at that point. They don't hate each other. They do love each other very much. Do they fight a lot? Because my two have always fought a huge amount. But I don't know whether... I mean, did they when they were six and seven? Yes. My two always had a massive sort of... It was like, you know, it was like sort of two members of a... You know, two footballers competing for the one kind of transfer deal. Like, that was always what it was like with my two. Get me using a football analogy. It's only because I just interviewed Chris Sutton. But, yeah, it is a... It, it would, they were always like that. And even now, they both came back this weekend to meet the puppy. And their little brother came as well. So it was all of us around the table and everybody regressed by well I was going to say 10 years but their little brother's only eight but they did all regress by some years and we decided it was because there was an even smaller thing that was getting all the attention so everybody got knocked off their perch in the pecking order of attention but yeah my two always had a bit of an old Barney quite often and and one thing someone said to me I don't know how it is with your two but um 
it's really easy to think you've got an easy child and go, well, that's the easy one. Not necessarily to them, but to think this is the one who plays the game of life, you know, in school. Yeah. And to be really wary of that. And, and I was so pleased someone said that because you realise as they go through, one of them will just be a bit, well, I don't know if you've got that, one of them just worries you more than the other. And it's easy to then think the other one's your kind of easy kid. Well, actually, I do have an easy kid and I have to get myself at their headset. And one of them worries me more than the other one. But that isn't, but the one who worries me more is the easy kid. Oh, okay. Well, you're just combining all the parenting advice well, into just the one child. Well, I've got well, I've got one child who's completely he's he's full on. He's, he's the energy. He doesn't sleep. Bounces off the walls. And constantly pushing back boundaries and authority. Um, but he will be fine. And the other one who's super bright and introverted has has got worries and concerns and he's crushed by empathy and and he's fighting tears for the most basic things all the time and is the emotional juggernaut runs him over day after day i love uh, him is he your first he's your first and he's my first and i think easy. my firstborns are a bit like that have you noticed that with friends that firstborn kids can be a bit more of a snail without a shell than subsequent kids I hadn't noticed that other friends had the same as well, but it's your description of a snail without the shell is, yeah, very much the case. Though that is a slug, and I don't know whether children <laughs> find that um, aspirational. How are you finding the whole single dadding thing then? Because you've only known me as a single parent, and when I met you, you were you were not. And how's, no, I how's wasn't, the, and now yeah. I am. Um, how am I finding single parenting? Well, I, I think this is probably a conversation we have had off podcast uh, in in snippets rather than in summary so um well i mean i'm, I'm naturally predisposed to be optimistic because otherwise i find it quite hard to motivate myself stuff so i actually say there's quite a lot of single parenting that is better than um co-parenting um like I mean, what I, like what well firstly you get per you get pri you get personal time um, I know parents, there are people who are co-parents who say, well, surely you get personal time, you know, when you're a parent because, you know, the one parent look after it and you go for a run or you go and see your friends and the other one looks after the kids. But it's not quite the same because you are still coming back to them. You are still on your way back from a night out, whether the other parents looking after the kids thinking, do I need to pick up anything for their pat lunch tomorrow and stuff like that. When they are not with you for three or four days, you can literally switch off because they're with the other person who would die for them and so you're not worried about that now i know a lot of single parents are going my other half they're useless only has them for a day barely thinks about it all the rest of it but i'm not one of those single parents i i try to be as as completely self um sort of like family sufficient rather than self-sufficient with them and and also because it's a nice thing to do to give the other parent you know that that ability to, to switch off because if you can't then you, you kind of your parenting becomes firefighting and you just do the minimum possible and well it's you know, babysitting you... not parenting i think when it gets to the yeah. point of just and do you do so you pretty much split it do you 50 50 oh no it's it's more two-thirds a third i think if you look it over a, i think we do add it up over a year i think i have them uh, 130 days a year and she has them for 220 or something like that i don't know so it's kind of yeah it's it's i, I have them less than half but um, I still have them a weekend day. I still have them evenings and, and all of the holidays are split in half. Do you so, find, because um, I used to, I mean, I had them most of the time, as, as you know, sort of more than not, not least because of just the logistics, you know, I had the kind of house that could fit them in comfortably and was really near the school and stuff. So it did make sense, even though their dad saw them a lot. 
But I did find there was something really weird about that kind of all or nothingness. Because when you have kids and you're in a family unit with mm. the birth, both birth parents together, then you're, it's just relentless around the clock. And then when you suddenly, it, it's so weird when you've got younger kids and suddenly you're the single parent and you've either got them with absolutely no backup or you've suddenly got no kids at all, which is such a weird thing at an age when it normally has always felt so relentless. Yeah, well, it's that... But that all or nothing kind of suits the comic mentality. If you're if you're a stand-up comic, you've got this weird situation where you've got to pull your A game in energy, personality, appearance, erudition, intellect. You've got to channel. You know, you've got to you've got to socially engineer your biorhythms to have all of your peaks at the same time. Um, you know, and and actually, that's why when comics are unwell, it's a, they can pull it out of the bag for twenty minutes, and then they crash like you wouldn't be believe immediately afterwards because they just kind of engineer themselves through it. And it's very much similar to single parenting. You know, you you know if you're ill and you're a single parent, you you just can't be ill. And people say to you, "What do you do if you're?" And you go, well, "You can't be ill." And he goes, "Well, that's not an answer." Well, it is. You just you know, and there were living people in Ukraine who had COVID when Russia invaded and they were told to get out. Well, those people who were bed bound got up, got their stuff and left town. You mm. know, it, it, you've always got that ability when when survival is 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 the is the motivation. And with kids, it feels like survival. It feels like if you don't do this, they might die. Um, and that all or nothing approach in comedy, it seems to work with with parenting as well um but i like you know so if you're going to say what's the best thing about single parenting it's that it's it's also you get elements of your life back there are people who are parents who kind of feel like oh i don't do this thing for myself and i can't go away for this weekend or you know and you can when you're when you're a single parent it's just it's just full on though and and also you don't get the help when you need it um that's the tricky bit that's definitely that's the case. parents have got so many kind of like friend networks with other single parents because you you almost end up living this sort of de facto um sort of community kibbutz type thing i do i never had you down for um living in a kibbutz type community <laughs> i did you've changed i did find that with mine i don't know if it's so much a single parenting as just being single i am aware that i'm very lucky to have a lot of very good friends in a way that Maybe it's not to do with being a parent on my own, but I think when you're single, you sort of really do cultivate a lovely social circle. I know you're not single. You've managed to not do the bit I did of um, of, of actually doing this fully without managing to hold down a relationship. You're managing to be a single dad with a relationship. Well, I, I, yeah, but I've done it without. And, and, yeah, and I wasn't actually... besmirching your credentials. I was just sort of more applauding the fact you've managed to actually <laughs> hold down another relationship and I haven't. We're not that, we're not that different, Callie. I, I, I am pretty certain that once you become a single parent and you start dating you don't change your life you don't suddenly go okay this person is now never present in my life i'm going to build the children everything around it because you can't mm -hmm. because if that person then goes you're left in the same situation where you were when you separated which is going i built a future based on two people doing all of this and now it's not happening and i've got to reinvent the wheel while running my own business while having a career while looking after two children and and it's always the transition that is tougher than the the day to day and when you when you get back into relationships as a single parent you you properly ring fence the bit that is your your kids your family and your career because you just go i can't turn this on its head again if the relationship side of things doesn't work so yeah you can hold down a relationship but you don't 
you don't start again from you know you don't allow yourself to be in a position where you're gonna to have to start again so from it's not merged it's no. both are running concurrently that's why i never managed to have one down Stephen, because i had the kids six nights a week and in that one night a week i didn't manage to cultivate a relationship and now i've got a dog i've got no time to cultivate yeah, but that's, a relationship that's, but you know you, you didn't have a dog because you opened the door one day and there was a dog sat I in the basket know, with a little note saying please look after me you dog. chose to do that i totally did and i stand by it no matter and you'll and you'll stand literally by him when when he comes to the forge which we'll talk about in a minute but okay. did you i remember you saying to me um and i should say to anyone listening that i owe you a big debt of thanks because you were very very much there for me in every possible way the first sort of well certainly majorly the first sort of three four years of me doing comedy when i was juggling a massive day job and wondering what the actual fuck am i doing so mm. in all regards you were very much there um helping me with everything from what my kind of voice was on stage to how to do it off stage mm. and i remember when you were saying about the ill thing I remember sort of saying I had never been ill at a certain point as a comedian because obviously a certain number of months in you haven't had the misfortune and then I remember talking to you I think you might have even been on with me I was properly ill and I was saying to you I don't know if I should do it and and I was I think I was even doubling up and you said you'll be absolutely fine on stage but just be ready for the most almighty crash and weirdly I don't know if it's the same for you but if I'm having a really bad time physically or mentally I often have an absolutely incredible gig, like better than ever. Do you, is that? Do you find that, or is that just a weird Cali Caliism? No, that's. I mean, I mean, it's more pronounced in some people than it is in others, and it's always usually a counterpoint to what else is going on in your life. I do wonder when comics get to the top of the tree and they've got wonderful lives away from it. You know, I mean, does John Bishop walk on stage and go, "Finally, my my." You know my 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 soul you know my soul museum you know I've, I've now walked into the place where i'm happiest when he's not incredibly good off it i don't know um but yeah of course that that kind of high that compartmentalized high and of course we've all become really aware of it because of the um because of the pandemic you know there was a lot of people out there who've been doing this decades not just years for whom regular performing was part of their mental health routine and it was extricated from their lives and they started to realize really early on that, that there was something missing outside of just an income and a purpose and you think an income and a purpose was significant enough but trust me there's more important than that and that was just literally how their soul and their brain works and and there was a massive chunk of it missing so yeah i mean that um that that when things were going bad in your life performing feels amazing and sometimes i thought is it the contrast because you enjoy it anyway and suddenly it's so much better or is it actually the fact that it's the reboot for the rest of your life because it's very rare to be in a terrible mood in a terrible place go and do a great gig then get off stage and return to exactly where mm -hmm. you were it is a it's, reset isn't it but it literally reset. resets your endocrine system i mean if you think about stress hormones and everything else it literally has reset you on a biological level i was talking to um justin morehouse on an episode of this that went out a couple of weeks ago and so i'm not giving away betraying any confidences that he was one of the comedians who massively took a tumble when mental health wise when when all the work dried up and he said on the podcast he said i would i would re if there was another lockdown i would retrain i could not bear to go through what i was doing and just desperately wanted to because he loves the actual live, live on stage. That's what he lives and breathes more than telly, more than radio, more than anything. And there were numerous comedians, I think, who properly t took a massive tumble mental health-wise. And then getting told that being um, in the arts isn't a real job probably didn't help. Well, I mean, that's the whole point. Nobody was clapping us. Uh, we were clappers, not clappies. Yeah, we were. 
and um and but a lot of people you know let's imagine you're a, a top marketing executive or you're uh, you're someone who uh, designs um shop fronts or something like that ah, let's say you do something no one that, cares about them no one yeah but you're an industry where you're considered important you consider yourself important and but they were furloughed they were all furloughed or went home there were people like earning loads of money to sit at home being furloughed was bittersweet you got paid to go home and you had a lovely garden but deep down inside you knew you were superfluous to the essential running of this country yeah that's true if you went to work during the pandemic congratulations without you this country doesn't survive if you didn't go to work during the pandemic this country survives without you doesn't matter that you got paid doesn't matter that you're really important in your industry doesn't matter all these other things and so yeah we are and 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 did you get a load of people going to you oh you know like you know let's let i've got to get reopen the comedy clubs we all need a laugh and at no point did I feel like I was providing an essential service. Apart from in the to myself. previous 20 years in which <laughs> yeah. I was doing comedy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, don't, yeah. don't get me wrong, everyone loves a laugh, but no one needs a laugh. We all need laughter in our life, but... but We needed PPE more at a certain point, I do agree. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, needing laughter is a bit like needing sex. It's a bit like saying the brothels have to reopen because we all need sex. Well, they no, did. Actually, we... You know, in Holland, did you know about that? They reopened the brothels really early on. They were among the essential services that were reopened. So they were reopened just after, I think, ahead even of... It was. It was ahead even of free access to eateries and venues. And they opened mm. them with very clear... So, yeah, that, that that's a true, true okay, story. Okay. I, I, think, I think using Holland as, a, as an example of, of how the world works... As I often is... do on this podcast yeah, we, and often I get picked well up imagine. on it... Yeah, I can well imagine. Uh, no, it's it's fine. But um, the point I'm making is is that we, um, the, the, as a social experiment for comics, will never experience anything like this ever again. I bloody because, hope not. We don't know for sure, do we? No. Well, well, maybe it might, might happen again, but we were never expecting it was going to happen. For the, I have done comedy since February 1997. I like the fact you've got the month there. It's like you started comedy six months before I started being a parent. Okay. That's there you go. So that's like comedy is my children, you there know, you and, and, and they are. Well, the, yeah. yours oh God, is going to bugger off as well, then at a certain point. This is what other friends of mine would call such a Stephen Grant thing to say. But, but come, um, so around um, about November 2019, I worked out that I had done comedy for half of my living life. So I had at that point, where was I, 46. Uh, and uh, 46 and a half and I worked out I'd done um, comedy I'd been a a non-comedian for 23 and a quarter years and I've been a comedian for 23 and a quarter years and I put up a little post saying I've done now do comedy I saw for, that I post think, yeah for tw- yeah for tw- for half of my life as soon as the pandemic came in I couldn't do comedy I worked out again about three months ago I have also done what for my life thanks to an enforced absence <laughs> due to the global pandemic. It's but like the Matrix, your way that. of uh, your comedy years. Are you, where are you, I should know this as a friend of yours, where are you in relation to the big 5-0 then? It's, uh, it'll be at some point next year. At some point next year? It's the okay. summer of next year I'll be the big 5-0. Well, and how are, you, how are you feeling about that? I mean, you look about 33. You've had a right old glow up since I met, when I first met you, you were running a comparing course uh, uh for alfie noakes and you uh, you uh, definitely dirty mu- muddy stilettos <laughs> or something in 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 near liverpool street station yeah dirty dicks dirty dicks whatever thank there you there you go and that, that was it was it was it was a filth followed by a, a sexual noun yes 
So that's what it was, yeah, dirty dicks, okay. Yes, muddy stilettos. And um, and you definitely look better and younger than you did, and that was seven years ago. So yeah. you've had, was that a, because you were, you, didn't bit, you were doing bits of cycling and stuff, because now you're a full-on, you've got the cyclist pod, and you're a full-on lycra-clad sporting fanatic. Yeah, I am. I'm a, I'm a lycra-lout. I'm a weekend warrior. I'm a yeah. twat on a bike. <laughs> a twat on a bike. That's what I was going to go with. Mm. So not that many men your age are doing that. So first of all, well done picking something like, that isn't true to type. <clears throat> As you well know, uh, Callie, what with you being a, um, a a woman who has had to reach out to single men around this <laughs> demographic, that the cyclists, and it's taking aside, the cyclists are the better specimens. Than the men who have done nothing with their lives oh i see what you mean no but what about the runners i've always quite liked the runners you met clive i like i've always liked the runners 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 are fit and if you like the thin you know and you kind of like thin looking after themselves thing but they are they've all got knackered hips knees and calves well no i as a 53 year old runner i would just like to say there's nothing knackered about my hips calves knees everything's working just which puts you in the minority and i say that categorically i mean just yeah i mean the runners are fitter than the cyclists uh, but, but they don't also, last as long. But they're knackering their skeletons. They're, they're yeah, they're mechanically being sh- broken over time. So they are good short-term relationships. Well, I'm. That means my relationship with myself might only be short-term, which is a worry. Um, but is the um, so in terms of the cycling and all of that stuff, was that a thing that you really picked up once you were on your own those days a week? Was it because you suddenly had three or four days a week when you were like? Well, the kids aren't here. What am I going to do with myself? No, actually, the cycling started as a begrudging embra- embrace of sport because my then wife uh, was absolutely adamant. She was obsessed with sport, wasn't she? Or she was obsessed with fitness. Yeah, she's obsessed with fitness. So yeah. she's obsessed with uh, of being in good physical shape. Yeah, and I've she... seen her contort herself in your front room. Yeah, well, she's able to um, pick up a pint glass off her head with her feet and drink it without using her hands. And soon, because of my running and my knees, I won't even be able to pick one up if it's on the floor with my no, hands. I was going to say, absolutely, yeah. It'll be back to the Tommy Tippy cups you <laughs> thought you put in the in the in the um, in the attic twenty years ago. But uh, no, so uh, she she was adamant that if we were going to make a child, uh, that it would it would it would need to come from better stock than the, what I was currently offering did she know uh, that I, your, I, I, your I, I, quality I thought, of your sperm wasn't going to change depending on how good you looked in lycra she was of the opinion that if i got fitter then then it would improve not only the quality of the sperm but the, the chance of it actually seeding i know that when you're um my mum and dad listen to this so i hope you're not they normally listen to it over lunch so sorry mum and dad but um if you're I thought it was, I know that if you've got a really bad life, a bad lifestyle, but if you drink loads and cane it, it's not great for your sperm count. I didn't know, like, if you could, if you were a triathlete, you'd have better swimmers than if you were a... It kind of stands to reason, isn't it? If, if you don't look after yourself, your sperm is in worse condition. Surely it stands to reason that if you do look after yourself, your sperm's in a better condition. Well, Chris Sutton did say that he's got six children and obviously every time he even looked at his wife, another child would be made because of yeah, the time that's footballers. Was... Footballers have a lot of spare time and are fit. Yeah. And, you know, and also they have partners who 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 can't really turn up, can't go to work with their other half. So they, they kind of need to do stuff with their time. I don't know. That was a, a, a sweeping generalisation. But where I live, two doors down, is the, the, the ex-partner of a footballer. And she is just turned 30. 
and her child is the same age as my eldest so coming up to, uh, is 10 so you Bloody know that's, yeah that's yeah. that's and the idea of being 30 and having a 10 year old makes my mind blow when i was 30 i was 10 years from making a baby yeah i well i was a mother of two by that age as well but not but they weren't 10 but i did have my kids in in my 20s Namaste, motherfuckers. why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them with royal caribbean you don't just go to the beach you visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in north america you don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I remember saying to you before you got mega fit, when I was, as you know, I've always been a reasonably, not obsessive runner, but a pretty avid runner. And I remember telling you about an article I'd read interviewing men who were close to breaking the two hour marathon and it was saying that it was so and it was talking about how to get through the mental pain barrier Mm -hmm. and they use one of them used the analogy of it's when you're sort of running at capacity or doing whatever sport you do at capacity the analogy was putting your hand in really uncomfortably hot water and just not taking it out so you're at a point where it's in you've just not got to take it out and slow down and at the time I said that to you and you said something like well anyone who feels like that about sport is mental but I imagine now given the sort of um, athletic pursuits you're doing you you probably are a bit more of the keep your hand in the water yeah, but I stand by my initial point. You're still mental. Um, but now you yeah. are one of those mental people with your hand in the yeah, water. Yes, and, and I did that during the pandemic. Again, I mean, we all, I mean, you talk to Justin. I'm, I can't wait to hear Justin's interview. I'm, I'm a friend of Justin's, but I know as well that he's really erudite about the about stuff that's incredibly personal. It's a lovely episode. It's worth a listen. And it's, he is not what you think at all, isn't he, Justin? He's so, there's so much more to him than you would think just watching his club set. Well, he's got that northern bluster, which allows him to be sort of dismissive, rise above stuff, you know, kind of like cheerily cynical and, and have strong defence system. But his ability to kind of uh, interrogate the, 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 the minutiae that kind of really racks the soul is, is excellent. And, and you know, He'd, he'd write a, if he was to ever sit down and write a good a self-help book I think it'd be really good it um, would be but, really good but know, he mustn't but, do but, that because I've still got experience. mine in the pipeline and I don't want any other comics doing that at the moment <laughs> okay fine well there you go then I'm, I'm sure we've all got a book ready to go especially when you're a comic age 50 and you're thinking well what now <laughs> exactly but, um, how can I make money while I sleep <laughs> but um well there's a lot of ways you can make money when you sleep but you normally have to knock yourself out and, and also apologize to them in the morning so but the uh, but 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 um, um sorry while we're talking about just that uh, we were talking uh, about the pandemic and getting fitter pandemic getting fitter and and actually you know i i i I've all my life, I've always thought to myself, the reason why I've got this high level of sort of stress and anxiety is because I don't ever take a break. And and there was no greater enforced break than the pandemic. And there was, and, and I I got really fit during it, but I did, still was desperate to work. So I started learning vision mixing, doing loads of online I remember you turned up like you were on one of the sort of Saturday morning live shows of our childhood with backdrops, cuddly toys, speakers, mixing desks. I think Anton Deck were there somewhere. Yeah, it's it. I just couldn't not work. But I also thought, here's the opportunity for me to see how fit I could get. And I did this thing called a, a solstice ride. I should say this thing. I came up with the idea and then Googled it and realised that other people do this already. Yeah, and the idea be. is, is that you go and do some sport when the sun comes up and you finish when the sun goes down. So it's endurance, but it's not to do distance. 
it's not to it's not to go speed it's to go time and it's the maximum time you can do i'm going to do that in december for one day yeah well well, people do the the night version in december they do a winter solstice one where they they start cycling or running or swimming when the sun goes down and they stop when the sun comes up but those people are right off two days and i I was only going to write off a day so i started cycling where i live near brighton uh, when the sun came up on june 22nd or whatever it was in 2020 and um, and i finished uh, when the sun went down but i went due north because i thought it was clever about this because i thought the further north i go the later the sun will go down so i gained about 18 minutes wow and, i'd have been trying I to go the south. north coast near chroma and you kept cycling all that way yeah did you Started stop at, for like a bacon bap or well, you couldn't have done cause was, was anything open at the time oh well that's do you know what um, yeah petrol stations um, so you could so get sustenance you could get food yeah. uh, and you could get drink um but toilets were nearly impossible. Are you pretending that as a man who goes out cycling in the wild, you actually bother about whether there are toilets? Because even I don't really care if there are toilets. Well, first and foremost, you know, a, a cyclist, a, a properly dressed cyclist, has a, a male cyclist has oh, a greater understanding of off. women's problems than any, because we wear bib shorts, which yeah. means we have to completely unrobe. It's like you're wearing yeah. a body uh, in order to go to the toilet. Um, and secondly, obviously, if you're out for 16 hours, you will need to do all range of toilet visits of course which and and you're going to be on roads you, I, I wasn't on a mountain bike so you know you it, it's not easy to duck off into bushes because you're on roads for nearly all of it you just hop off at a lay-by jump over the railing nice bit of naked wild shitting and bob's your uncle back to the solstice cycle i, I do believe naked wild shitting was the original working title for this <laughs> podcast wasn't it but i don't know I, but <laughs> it's definitely going to be the name for my next show because i spent so long sitting in the garden waiting for the puppy to shit that i just about need one myself i think menopause and puppies' uh, biorhythms are much the same. That's what I love about you, Kelly. You embrace (laughs) things that are for your soul, like having a puppy and love and and, and companionship and making connections. But it fuels this ability for you to say pithy, cynical, pessimistic (laughs) things about all of the hardship that comes hand in hand with it. This is why you love a relationship, because you want to be loved, you want to be close to somebody, but all the things they do wrong is just manna from heaven for whinging, isn't it? Listen, I'm just not going to settle it. 53 years in I'm not willing to settle so um you know when the just, right you just you just haven't met the right person over half of a century later um, I, well I have but the right they say I something someone said to me when my relationship with Hamish ended but I don't think someone said it. I think I was scouring through whatever help books I could find about um people like me you couldn't make relationships work and it said relationships are not broken they're just complete and I quite like the idea of seeing so you could see your first or second marriage or both as complete you didn't yeah. fail she didn't fail but they are now complete I think that's a very forgiving way to look at it I, I've I completed well, a lot of things in the last you know I, I, I get on well with both of my ex-wives my second wife I get uh, uh, get on well with because of the fact that we worked hard at having a functioning co-parenting relationship and the first wife I got on brilliantly by virtue of the fact the last time I spoke to her was in court in uh 2009 that was where so, you won a lawsuit because she was saying you couldn't talk about your your divorce on stage is that right correct yeah yeah all right about her or anything that would bring her into disrepute in my art and you took her to court and you won well we were in court already she wanted that to become a uh a part of this a part of the legal settlement is there any precedents where that's the case no which is why my lawyer bloody loved this because she, she invoked the 1948 Geneva Convention of Human Rights, which which enshrines the right of a performer to talk about anything uh, in a way that is not uh, legally restrained. 
and uh, and so in the same way as when you, you say know, she, your lawyer invoked that. Not she, your she, my ex-wife. lawyer said yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. My lawyer said, you know, it is it is my client's right to be able to talk about anything in a way that doesn't uh, operate under legal constraints. And we well, want. I don't know how much she paid her for that, but what a great moment. See, that was free actually, but I paid her a lot for everything else. In fact, to be honest with you, I don't know. I think I probably paid her for it, and it probably is buried in an invoice somewhere that I've never looked at. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah, it was um, it was uh, it, it allowed me to go international press I've, I've always had the odd bit of press that creeps out every now and again but when you feature in the mumbai mirrors that's weird section if, if, <laughs> if you're in the look at the weird things that are happening around the world section of an indian newspaper you know it's weird that's it i'd have just retired at that point and gone well that's it my job's done i've featured I, i've yet to feature in those pages and did you um with lots of people it's easy to say well what's next and they talk about hypothetical things so not only did you sort of upgrade uh, mind and body during the pandemic but you also and lots of people who listen to the podcast are massive comedy aficionados but not everybody is mm. so the Forge in Brighton. So for anyone who doesn't know listening, I will say it so you don't sound like an arrogant prick. So um, Stephen is quite well known, it's fair to say, as a uh, compare, as well as as a comic, but definitely very lauded as compare. You get the best comparing gigs in the country, mm. for sure, and well earned. And uh, not content with that, you have now set up a massively ambitious, amazing, bespoke venue in Brighton. So you know me well, because you started that, list of um, superlative slash adjectives with massively ambitious and it really really is I know uh, when I, I heard I, you t- you called me about it when it was a bit more of a sort of glint in your eye and I was like god this is an ambitious project yeah but you've I mean, it's, it it's ambitious because I'm, what I'm trying to do is pitch for one of the best is build and 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 develop one of the best comedy clubs in the country um, from scratch and that's and I <laughs> You know, I, the, the Comedia was not a bad club in the first place. So you were the resident of people who don't know. So you ran the Crater Club at Comedia in Brighton for years and years. You very much were the face of Crater yeah. Club. Um, yeah. And you now, so that was already massive. So your name and comedy in Brighton, the two things are kind of synonymous. So there's yeah. the ground is soft for people to know that if your name's involved, it might be all right. Yes. And, and, and thankfully, with all the other ad hoc stuff I was doing, which obviously ramped up during the, the, um, the pandemic because Comedia didn't reopen for 15 months and I needed to work. Mm-hmm. So I was doing odds and sods on the beach and I had a Brighton Open Air Theatre and I had Hassock's Gardens, which was the, the kind of the literally a, a converted um, sort of venue in the garden of my local pub. And all of these things were happening. But, you know, I would never do comedy unless it was great. Yeah, I, I just couldn't motivate myself to do something I felt that was not there. And actually, you know, it's always been really good comedy. Uh, it previously was really good comedy and earned me decent money. Now it's previously, now it's really good comedy and it's not earning me anything because the work involved in, in everything. I mean, I've got seven people working with me and four of them are just doing marketing. So this how- was, and just to track back to what it is, Um, Well, first of all, just so people realise the kind of scale of a venue we're talking about in terms of talent. So uh, just talk us through the lineup of the first gig you did at The Forge. I think that was Jen Brister, uh, Joe Wells and Romish Ranganathan. So just a kind of crappy names no one will have heard of. Yeah, exactly. None of those. So you're able, and I think you have literally been working your way through just about every major comic that seems to have done it. Obviously, I've not been there yet, Stephen, but I know I'm coming soon. You are, you are. And you had something in and you had to pull it, I believe, but you've got it. Coming back, I think I was uh, ill. I think I called you full of COVID. Although I've had COVID so many times now, people think I'm making it up. I just genuinely have had it a lot. Do you remember when having COVID twice meant you were international news? Yeah, yeah. 
And by then, I'd already had it seven times. There weren't even that many variants. So it was quite amazing. Do you trace back where you got your... Do you know what? Let's not talk about the COVID. I do know where I got my first... I got my first COVID um, at a night called Hysterical Women at the Bill Murray, where I emceed it about a week before lockdown. And they... Because they had a lot of agents in, it was a showcase night. So there happened to be about 13 very good female comedians on the bill, each doing little bits. And of all the gigs not to do, the Bill Murray tons of people me comparing and at that point we didn't realize quite i remember saying to people i'll shake your hand if you want or not if you don't it's up to you and most people i shook their hand we shared a mic and in the bill murray you are less than six feet away from almost the whole audience so when i got covid five days later and i found out how you get it i was like, i literally that would if it was a social experiment i couldn't have done that night without getting how many COVID. other people got it from that night several people got it but not but not everybody got some audience members got it at the time when you were sort of feeling it but not all the comics got it but then you can see why not all the comics would have got it because we don't know at what point I got it do you know what I mean it might have been if you were one of the first four comics on the oh. mic hadn't got anything the you know no one had got it but yeah that was the night I got it so when they say women shouldn't do comedy obviously they're completely right because if it wasn't for that night I'd be fine um, that's irony listeners uh, but so going back to the forge so it is in I've not been there yet but me and my dog are really very much looking forward to frequenting it. Laura Lex has already told me she takes her dog there. So yeah. you're going to have to just let me take Jeff there. Yeah. Well, the owner has a dog that lives there as well. So there are dog sitting facilities. I'm not kidding, but there's a pet gate between oh. the toilets and the stage. In fact, if I have a busy weekend of other gigs, I might just leave him at the Forge and uh, see what gives. But it's not all about my dog. It is about your venue. So the Forge is a converted ironworks. It is. It's the original ironworks that's next to Brighton Station that actually made the rails. So uh, and then it turned into uh, then it was an actual ironmongers and, uh, and then it turned into offices. And now it's been bought by the Brighton Pride Association who've turned it into a kind of a, a performance and recording multimedia space. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty spectacular. And is it, a, is it, it must be really exciting to be involved in something like that, but are you also shitting yourself? Yeah, because, because the speed at which you can run out of money doing a comedy club is quite high. I didn't realize it was the case that normally you'd put comics on and then you sell tickets. And if the tickets don't cover the cost of the comics, you either go ahead and make a loss or you pull the night. And so all you lose is your work. But this is commitment. This has got brand. This has got, you know, I've got a, um, a pretty much a full time videographer who does a multi multi uh, camera 4K shoots from every show. We've got, you know, uh, um, uh, we've got motors under the stage. We've got a motorized curtain. We've got um, the entire color system is on sort of computerized so that when we did our Ukraine fundraiser gigs, we were able to make the entire venue bathed in yellow and blue. So everything's programmed remotely. It's, it's um, you know, a eight meter wide projection behind the comics, which we can digitally alter in real time, uh, full lease line streaming. So we've already got the facility to make all shows go out multi-camera. Every time we've tested it, it works. The amount it's like work, a TV studio, basically. It's it's basically a TV studio mm. with with um, with decent drinks, toilets, and an, and a nice lounge. Are it's, you doing? Um, because I in I don't know if you've done any of these, but as you know, I do. Look, I know you've done lots of corporates. I'm not saying have you done any corporates, but I don't know if you've done any of what I'm about to say type of corporates, which is 
quite a lot of companies, I think, because they got so used to doing everything via Zoom or WebEx or whatever they were doing. I've done a few now for big global companies where they literally do go into a studio and they set up, you know, in a TV studio or they get a sort of studio set up for them at Tobacco Dock or whatever. And then they literally do have, you know, me hosting it, various kind of CEOs and stuff. But yours would be an amazing venue for corporates to be hiring to do shit like that. It would. But did you not find, you know, because I did a few of those studio based uh, corporate or kind of like. I liked them. Yeah. But then that's because you felt like you're going to work. I, I it's because I felt like I was it's because I'm not booked as a comedian it's because I'm booked as a as a non-comedic host who happens to be slightly funny which is yeah. so much of a nicer booking than oh you're yeah because whenever be you're funny they go that's a bonus as and you're funnier than the, than the CFO so you're a genius whereas yeah, exactly. if you go on they're like come on then mm. so is it but I, I anyway there was just a thought but I, 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 I ended up finding out that, that my rig at home as it developed over time it was actually be, be, higher uh was was better resolution better reliability better quality i mean hopefully this call we're having right now sounds pretty clear it does yeah exactly yeah well this is and i'm not wearing I keep looking behind me i'm like are you in the room where what's happening yeah i know i'm not wearing headphones i don't have a lapel mic on this is now set up to be as as perfect as it could be well i'm here in a really bad acoustic room with really shit headphones on but it still sounds nice on the podcast keep yeah i'm sure i'm sure but the 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 point i'm making is is that you know i i started going into venues that were being hastily retrofitted for streaming and zoom that weren't as good as your back bedroom and I, yeah, when I had an, an office and bed, a bedroom at home that could bang out at a much higher level, there was there was a brief period, wasn't there, about four or five months into the the first lockdown, when we all started thinking, is it going to be like this forever? I know. And that's when I started building an escape room. <laughs> I remember, I remember you talking about that. I thought you'd lost, you'd taken leave of your senses. No, I bought, I built an online escape room. I mean, I could bring it up behind me now. I could screen could change, and you could be walking around a huge house looking for clues. Uh, that and, must and be the, the most. Items. That might be the most spotty thing anyone's ever said on this podcast. All Quite the spotty. <laughs> All no, the I like the word spotty because it's both juvenile <laughs> and dated. Well, you've just summed my entire personality up. So thank you. All comedy in this country and multi-million pound industry started with a hobbyist going. We can bring this all together. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick as your namaste, motherfucking life-changing moment? First and foremost, can I just say, it's a great question, even though you, you could imagine it's slightly sort of open-ended. And I think in the majority of cases for comics, they, their, their go-to thought that pops into their head is when they started comedy and why they started comedy. But, but I'm one of these people that's always a bit Big Bang Theory about any idea or concept that something else made that happen and something else made that happen. And yeah, fair enough, that first step of standing up on stage and doing comedy was a huge one. And the bit where I decided I wanted to do comedy was a huge one. And the bit after that where I sat down and wrote jokes for my first one was a huge one. They were all big leaps into the unknown. They were hobbyist ideas. I never thought I was going to leave my job to do it, but then the dream sort of took hold. But if you go back further than that, it's the bit where it could be possible for me to become a comedian. And obviously, I can't I, I say obviously, but hopefully I come across as sort of quite bright and intuitive, you know, and these are all good skills to have as a comedian. And I've always been a bit of a show off. I can't think of a time when I've not been a show off. So you think, okay, well, there's the ingredients. Well, so you said, well, why didn't it happen when you were 19? Why did you wait until you were 23 or something? And you think, oh, it could be my job or relationships or something like that. But actually, 
in order to get better as a comedian, you need to have these two fundamental character traits. One of them is ego, because you've got to have self-belief, especially when a, a room of strangers hate you, you still have to think you're great. But the other one is empathy, because comedy is not a science. You can't read a book or do a course on it, even though there are lots of books and courses on it that will help you. Um, because you need to understand what other people find funny about you. And if you're, okay, yeah, write what you find funny yourself, but you've got to perform it in front of people to learn what they do and don't like. And if you've got so much self-belief, and that's where the ego comes in, that you think it's funny every time, you never get better. So you've got to have the ego to think you're brilliant, but you've got to have the humility to realise that you regularly won't be, and it might be for reasons that you can't comprehend. And that empathy to understand how a group of people perceive you, hear you and understand you was missing in my life for the first 22 years until I was about 22. And what and this is a year before I started doing stand up. And I had a girlfriend then called Louise and Louise was five years older than me. So she and, and also being a female and me being quite sort of childish to start being bright. So the maturity gap between us was huge. And, and, and typically, if you're a 20, well, I started seeing her when I was 20. If you're a 20 year old bloke going out with a 25 year old girl um, and she's quite mature and she'd been through a lot and she'd lost a parent. So she'd grown up earlier in a time and I was 20 and only just moved out of home. And, you know, and had disposable income for the first time and, you know, and, and discovered all the trappings of partying, which I never really did when I was a teenager because I wasn't that popular. Um, so, so I, you know, there was a huge maturity difference between us and she, she definitely loved me and she definitely fancied the pants off me and so was willing to put up with the fact that I was comprehensively difficult to be around because I had all this self-belief and all this ego and no humility so she she stuck with it I and mean, she didn't argue with me she never really argued she would just take time to sit down and talk with me and i didn't ever listen because i was one of those people just waiting for somebody else to stop talking so i could talk and it's, again these are all traits of your standard stand-up comic they're, they're massive failings but you know but, but nonetheless but, but they're ones you'll find elsewhere in life as well and we went away to italy and we were on a holiday in Italy and we were a week and it was a it was a, a, a friend of hers house and we were staying there and um, a friend spoke a bit of English, but nobody else did. So we could only really ever talk to each other. So that show off vibe of mine that I do with new people and I meet them. Hey, look at me. Look, what I'm, you know, I'm really funny and silly, whatever that I couldn't couldn't do it. I couldn't do that with her. And I was finding it quite frustrating. And it was late at night and we would sort of I think we were just um, sitting on the bed before we went to sleep. And we were chatting about the day and how I tried to have a conversation with someone that didn't work. Uh, I can't remember the exact specifics of it. And, and, and she said, she said, it's really, I'm, sorry, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember exactly what happened. Because I think we've also had a few drinks as well. She said, she said, the frustration for me is you have all this brain that allows you to understand how the world works, but you don't understand how people think. And if you spent your brain energy understanding how people think then you'd understand how you look and how you sound and all that ability you've got to change your voice and change what you do and everything you know where, where you goof off and you pretend to be other people and stuff you could you could be the person that they want to listen to and they sound and you know and, and it's kind of weird because what she was saying was the opposite of when people say just be yourself because just be yourself is actually quite bad advice for comedians um because because what they are when they're themselves is, is an encapsulated ball that doesn't allow connections with the outside world because they're obsessed with themselves, you know, but not obsessed with themselves as in like self-belief, but obsessed with themselves because there's so much going on that they, they can't think outside of that sphere. 
and 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 what she was asking me to do was to was to start to understand to basically sow the seeds of empathy that ability to understand how people think was the beginning of humility and that humility then became the empathy and with the empathy came the ability to understand how i came across and without that i'd have never been able to have done comedy i would have wanted to have tried comedy i would have been frustrated when people never laugh and would have spent my life blaming audiences and never becoming better than an open spot and that um, also explains why you have been fated as one of the country's best compares, because without empathy and that capacity, you certainly could never have yeah. become a top but, compare. But, but there is nothing more intricately fascinating in the world than people. And what is your favourite joke? If, now, I couldn't work out if this is a joke that I tell or somebody else tells. Whatever your favourite joke is, yours, someone else's. We're very lucky. We, as a, You compare a lot like myself, Callie, and as a result, we get to hear a lot more comedy because we're there for the whole night. I reckon compares maybe listen to maybe five to ten times more comedy than other mm -hmm. comedians because other comedians turn up and then go. Uh, you know, they might listen, but they're, 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 the, they're, they're the exception rather than the cause. And... Um, uh, Nick Doody is a, is a good comic. He's he's not famous and he probably never will pursue that fame level stuff. But he had a joke around the time of the Iraq War. Now we, I'm not going to bore your listeners, even the comedy geeks, with the kind of the nature of like the the, the setup punch, the, the 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 rule of three, you know, toppers, you know, the the hidden punchline, all the rest of it. But this joke has them all, and it was it's an observation joke. So it's, it was topical. So you have to remember it worked better at the time, but it just, it, and I, I can't remember word for word, Nick will be able to tell it better. So if you ever get him on, you know, definitely get him through this one. But it was about the fact that, you know, uh, the war in Iraq was happening and people were very uncomfortable with it. And he said, I think what you do is when you look at the war in Iraq, you have to very much think of it as like anal sex in as much as I don't think we've really been asked. Um, however you dress it up, it's an invasion and it's going to be painful unless we get the oil. <laughs> what a good job. That's got it all, hasn't it? Hasn't it? And, and, and it's, it was the rule of three. Yeah. It's sort of built up. Each yeah. one of those got a laugh. And then yeah. the final laugh yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely floored the room. Um, and, and it was, yeah, there are better jokes. There are longer jokes. There are bigger laughs. No, but that's from brilliant. from a technical perspective, it's got it all. It's perfection. And, yeah, and so I remember I remember sitting there and thinking, and you know, uh, years of working with other comics and writing with them and sort of like making other people look good, directing. which is what you basically do. <laughs> yeah, that that I would always look at a joke and say, "Well, you could change that, you can improve that." And there's always going to be wording changes. And I haven't told that joke as well as Nick tells it, but I remember looking at it and sort of thinking, "That is a that is a birthday cake of a joke. It's got yeah. sprinkles, it's got buttercream, it's got chocolate, it's got a You lot. couldn't grease the wheels of that one because it was already greased. Um, yeah. And what advice would you give to anyone listening if there's one bit of life advice? Um, yeah, do anything with your health that makes you not need more sleep because we we all live a certain age based on, you know, whether we're lucky, whether we're healthy. Um, but we, I still feel like, even though I think I'm probably about halfway through my life, um, that we just aren't on the planet anywhere near and as much time for the things we want to see and the things we want to do and the things we want to experience. And for a lot of people, it's about, I'm going to go out there and go to these places or I'm going to do this thing or I'm going to learn this thing. And that is great. But actually, you can only do that with the hours that you're up. And one of the 
key advantages of exercise that, that everybody overlooks is you don't need as much sleep once you exercise. Do you know, I didn't know that. Yeah. You're, you, if you, okay, fine. When you're not running, okay, because you're, you're not well or you've fallen off it, you, you end up sleeping more. You yeah, just do. that's true. I'd never thought of that. Yeah. And the difference when you knew me seven years ago was that I used to sleep seven and a half hours in and, and now I sleep five and a half. So I have two extra hours every day. And okay, very Stephen Grant, but I've got 10% more life, right? Imagine the money people spend in clinics and stuff like that to add 10% more life. And those are years at the end of your life and they're all crap, right? And so I've got that time now. So I just, I just think, you know, when you do things for yourself, it's a reward. And the reward is that you can go and do things with your life, you know, and, and, and read a book if you love a book, you know, learn new language, learn a musical instrument, all of all of those things but but one of the reasons why i'm i'm just i interrupt people on conversation stuff is that i know where it's going and that's the empathy now may be rude because i now know what they're saying and all the rest of it but i just i, I time i think is there is no precious more precious commodity than time so do the things with your life that free that up and start with your health <laughs> that was Stephen grant so that's pretty much it for this week every episode as you know i pick a thing inspired by my guests that i'm going to do this week when i'm recording this and indeed when it's going out it is a heat wave so i am going to dust down the exercise bike that i bought during lockdown i've been wondering whether to sell but as you know i'm a runner uh, i'm not going to run in this weather because i will gingerly pass out so i'm going to have a couple of goes on the exercise bike by an open window um, i'm sure Stephen wouldn't approve of that exercise bikes <laughs> they're for losers so that is it for this week thank you so much for listening please remember to rate review and recommend the show we love you for doing that and we will be back in your feed next week as always on thursday when i will be talking to comedian and new mum of little baby mabel harriet kemsley I don't know what to do. You just have to work it out somehow. I mean, thank God for Google. What did people do before Google? Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Mm-hmm.